Please pray with me again. Father, we are the people of your pasture and the sheep of your hand. And Father, we delight to be such. Father, it is a comfort to us, and Father, it is knowledge that is necessary, and so it is knowledge you have given us that you are seated on your throne, Father, that none can compare to you. Father, that you do not need counsel, and Father, you don't need our counsel, but we need yours. And so we ask, Father, that you would give us a humble and contrite heart. Father, that you would help us uh, as we go this morning to apply to our hearts the forgiveness that has been won for us through your foolishness, through your cross, Lord. That is foolishness of the world, but Father, it is the height of wisdom in your design. And so we pray, Father, that from this text you would help us to understand these things more clearly, Father, so that we would worship you from hearts that have been purified and sanctified, Father, further conformed to the image of your Son by your Spirit as you apply your word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the human will is a problem. The human will is a problem. And I think that's probably a fairly uncontroversial statement, at least in this room. In fact, even the world knows that this is true. How much of life is characterized by the need to get people to will to do what they should do? This starts even from a young age, right? Even from infancy. A baby would be better off if it would just stop crying between feedings and sleep, especially at night right? Toddlers would be better off if they would eat their vegetables. Children would be better off if they would just listen to their parents. Teenagers would be better off if they applied themselves to their schoolwork, if they picked up their rooms, and if they respected those in authority over them. And of course, the list could go on and on. Perhaps the most cliched example of the problem of the will is the fact that, as we all know, we are better off if we eat healthy and exercise. Which means, I know for most of you, your typical morning starts off, after your one-hour quiet time, of course, with a five-mile run, some body weight resistance exercises, and a really healthy breakfast, something like unsweetened whole grains and a green drink, right? That's how <laughs> most of you start your mornings. No? Why not? Don't you know that would be good for you? Well, again, this is because the human will is a problem. And hopefully you're seeing that this is universally true, from, from children to adults. It's universally true, and it's not really controversial. In fact, if we expand that out to all the unpleasant things in the world that have come about and continue to happen because of human choices, and think about this from a theological perspective, that it extends all the way back to the fall and to the curse that is still part of this world's present reality because of sin. And not only is the human will a problem, we might even say it's the biggest problem we have. And I think that's true, at least in the sense, if only because the human will is so closely connected with sin. Because of its connection with sin, the human will is our biggest problem. Now, I want you to think about this in another way, and some of you might have already gone there in your minds. You've heard this many times from this pulpit. We do what we do. Why? 
because we want what we want. If you haven't heard that one before and committed it to memory, you might want to write it down. We do what we do because we want what we want. We get this from texts like Luke 6.45 and Mark 7.21, that it is from the heart, from the seat of the will, that our actions and words proceed. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We do what we do because we want what we want. Why don't I do what I should? Why, why don't I do because what I know would be good for me? Because, and I've heard some of our counselors say it this way, I have a wanter problem. I have a broken wanter. I want the wrong things and I need to want the right things instead. The human will is a problem. So, what can we do to fix this problem? Well, there would be a number of ways we could go about dissecting this further from any number of texts. But we find in our text for today, Genesis chapter 11, that the desires that inform our actions can at least at times, as they are in this text, they can be reduced to two categories, fear and ambition. Our fears and our ambitions drive our behavior. And what we will find is that the Bible, and it does this over and over again, but we see a very early example of it in today's text, that the Bible gives only two options for how we can respond to our fears and our ambitions. Only two options for how we can respond to that will, that desire. How can we respond? Option one, we can pursue man's wisdom. Option two, we can pursue God's foolishness. Now, I realize that's a provocative title, the wisdom of man and the foolishness of God. To speak of God's folly or God's weakness might almost seem like sacrilege, right? But I figure I'm also on safe ground, given that those are basically Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 1, as we read together at the beginning of the service. And I think Paul meant to be provocative when he wrote those words. So that's what we're going with, the wisdom of man and the foolishness of God. As we move through our text this morning, we will see clearly the contrast between these two. And this is reflected in the big idea, the line at the top of the notes page, which is basically just verse 25 from 1 Corinthians 1, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, and please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Genesis 11, starting with verse 1. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they have begun to do. 
So now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarug. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarug, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah. And he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we continue into chapter 11 this morning in our study of Genesis, we should note that this chapter represents the final or the end of what is called primeval history. The narrative up to this point describes events starting all the way back with creation in chapter 1 that took place long before this account was written by Moses on the plains of Moab. As I've mentioned throughout our Genesis series, one of the main ways in which Moses serves us as his readers in the book of Genesis is by giving us God's answers to the most fundamental questions that can be asked. And we've had so many of those questions answered, haven't we? Questions like, who is God and what is he like? 
What is man and how should man relate to God? Why is there sin and suffering in the world? What changed at the fall? And then, most recently, what changed after the flood? Now, as we approach the history of Israel's patriarchs, we are having our final questions answered about the transition from primeval history. Questions like, how did nations form and scatter across the globe? And how did it come about that there are so many different people groups who speak different languages? As you may have noticed last week, although it's not something I focused on in the sermon, Genesis 10 mentions multiple times, almost in passing, that the various people groups descended from Noah were separated and spread out according to their tongues, by their lands, according to their nations. Now what Genesis 10 reports as later fact, Genesis 11, we see this morning in its first nine verses, comes back to explain how and why such a separation and spreading out took place. And what we find in these nine verses, the first nine, is that the separation or the scattering, that's the word that the text uses over and over, the scattering of the nations took place because of the wisdom of man. Or to put it another way, what we see here is man's studied determination, man's wisdom, which leads him to rebel against God and to raise him up in pride, to raise man up in pride, which results, we'll see, in their scattering. Now to see this, we need to start by looking back at commands that God had given in the preceding context. In chapter 9, verse 1, after Noah and his family had exited from the ark, we read this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was, of course, a restatement of the creation mandate. It was always God's instruction to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the earth. But as Noah's descendants make their way to Shinar in chapter 11, note what they say in verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. And something to notice, by the way, this is the case in verse 3 also. Whose counsel are the people seeking? Whose counsel are they taking? It's their own. They said to themselves. They said, come, let us take for our, build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Here in verse 4, we find the twofold motivation I mentioned a moment ago. The people here identify both their fear that they would be scattered, and they identify their ambition that they should make a name for themselves. Now, to try to understand the heart behind this, think about the circumstances of these people. It's been a couple hundred years or so since the worldwide flood. And Noah's descendants have multiplied to the extent that they could be scattered into multiple people groups. So they've, they've multiplied to become a pretty large number. They would, of course, have known stories passed down of how pre-flood humanity had built great cities. We saw that back in chapter 4. And doesn't it make sense for that to be a desire? Wouldn't it make sense to gather together in a place where you could pool your strength and your resources? Remember, the circumstances had changed since the flood, too, in that people now had a new relationship of enmity with the animals. So there was now danger from the animals. So it makes sense, doesn't it, to gather all the human strength in one place and to build a structure 
a strong tower that represents your common strength and the security that you can feel together as a people. And so, their motivation of fear, we see, leads the people to pursue behavior that is opposed to what God had commanded. God had commanded, spread out, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth, and the people from fear and ambition are saying, no, we're going to stay together and build ourselves a strong tower, make for ourselves a name. And of course, as I just alluded to, their motivation is not limited to fear only. What else do they say in verse 4? They say, let us make for ourselves a name. This is where we see perhaps even more clearly that this people's behavior is directed against God. Back in chapter 4, with the first mention of the righteous line of Seth, at the end of that chapter we read, Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. In the earlier part of chapter 4, the line of Cain had made a name for themselves. And this starts with Cain building a city and naming it after his son. They literally attached their own names to cities they built in their own honor. And so unlike the righteous line of Seth that trusted in Yahweh's name instead of their own, what we see here in chapter 11 is a heart like Cain's that wants to exalt itself, to make a name for itself. It's the opposite of the heart that we read of in Psalm 115, verse 1, which says this, Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. So we see the people at Shinar, motivated by a combination of fear and ambition, they undertake to accomplish their own purpose in opposition to the purpose God had given them. And consider, again, where they look as they seek to accomplish their own purpose. They take their own counsel. And they look to human strength and ingenuity. They look to man's wisdom. We see this from a number of details in the text. It seems that in Shinar, there may not have been the kinds of stones and mortar that the Israelites would have been familiar with from Egypt. And so, verse 3, and this is how Moses describes it, they figured out a way to burn bricks thoroughly enough that they could be used in a substantial building project. They were similarly resourceful using tar that occurred naturally in this area instead of mortar. And it's apparent that the results of these efforts represented no small feat. In keeping with what we understand from the archaeological record and from extra-biblical literature, which provide evidence of what are known as the great ziggurats or towers of Mesopotamia, it seems that the people of Shinar succeeded in building a multi-story structure whose top, it might have seemed from their perspective, actually did reach to heaven. Even God's evaluation in verse 6 indicates that they had worked together to achieve their purpose in a way that showed great potential. God says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. So now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, with this picture in mind, this picture of man's fear and ambition leading to impressive innovation and achievement, I want you to think for a moment about your life and this modern world that we live in. We can all identify with these urges, can't we? Do you know what it's like to be afraid that you won't have what you need to keep yourself and your loved ones safe? 
Have you ever feared that it could come to the point, whether because you've lost your job or you fear the fear that you might? Have you ever feared that you wouldn't be able to afford a safe place to live? Do you know what it's like to be anxious that you won't find a solution to a medical problem that you or your loved one has? Have you ever worried, perhaps especially lately, that the supply chain could fail and that if you aren't prepared, that you and your family could starve? Or if you found yourself in a position where these needs, these basic needs seem to be met, do you know what it's like to look to greater ambitions? Have you found yourself wanting to make a name for yourself in your profession? Maybe you've turned your attention to the next level of advancement in education or in your career. Maybe you hope to leave a financial legacy to your children or your grandchildren. Something you can be proud of knowing you've made a lasting impact on the world or at least for your family. Now I'm not saying that all these things are inherently wrong. They're not. But where do they often lead us? If we're at all like the world, and really how hard is this to resist? If we're at all like the world, our fears and ambitions tend to lead us to take the world's counsel and to pursue man's wisdom. And really, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't save money or prepare for the future, but I do want to challenge you as to the priority you might give to using man's wisdom to serve your fears and ambitions. Again, we see in, in Genesis, God had given his priority. He had given his counsel. He had given his mandate more than once already to multiply and spread out and to fill the earth. And the people here in Genesis 11 are positioning themselves directly opposite God's priority in order to establish their own. Friends, God gives his priority. And as I've mentioned in both of the last two sermons, God's priority hasn't really changed for us. God continues to call us to be a blessing, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, God's call is not, it continues not to be for us to secure our own comfort and safety and health and well-being. That's not God's call for us. God's call is for us to spend and to be spent for the purpose of his church, which according to his commission is still to spread. It's to go. We are to go to every people and nation and tribe and tongue so that God's name would be glorified, to make a name for God that we get to share in his glory. And by the way, that's a very sweet connection between this text and what's, what happens later in the book of Acts at the founding of the church. God's judgment at Babel sees its initial reversal at Pentecost, where instead of having languages confused, God supernaturally causes men to speak and to understand foreign languages they had never known so that God's counsel would be proclaimed and so that the foundation for God's church would be laid. What, what is confused at Babel finds its initial reversal or restoration at Pentecost. Now I want you to recall what we've noted already about cities from previous chapters and specifically about this city that is at issue in Genesis 11, the city which becomes known as Babel. You remember who was identified in chapter 10 as the founder of Babel? Nimrod. And what does Nimrod, together with Cain's descendants and all their cities, what do they represent for the faithful? They represent the oppressors or the afflictors of the faithful. 
Implicit in Genesis 11, and we'll get to this in more detail in a moment with point two, implicit here is that there is an ongoing struggle between the righteous line of Shem and the cursed seed of Ham, represented by Nimrod, the founder of Babel. Listen to these words of the psalmist from Psalm 55, and just listen to how they seem to relate so closely to this context. Psalm 55, starting in verse 9. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. So we hear the the cry of the righteous here, asking for what? That God would confuse and divide their tongues. For history not to repeat itself, for the world to not fill once more with all the wickedness man could could conceive of as it had by the time of chapter 6, for that not to happen again, God's intervention would be necessary. And so we find God intervenes. Verse 5, Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now it's significant that as in chapter 10, Yahweh's covenant name occurs in this chapter only with his chastisement, only with this people. It occurs three times here in these verses, and it's all with what's going on here in Babel. And really, how gracious this action is in keeping with God's nature as the self-existent one who fulfills his covenant promise. If we consider this as a response to the cry of the faithful like the one in Psalm 55, Yahweh comes down. And we see this again and again in Scripture, that Yahweh is a God who comes down. He is a God who is near to his people. We see this ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus, of course, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Yahweh, hearing the cries of the righteous, comes down. God comes down here and he thwarts the wisdom of men. And this specifically is where we learn the reason for the scattering of the nations and the multiplication of languages. This is God's faithfulness in his judgment and restraint of sin. Now, there are a couple of ways in which God subtly mocks man's wisdom in this text before he directly thwarts it by his divine action. First, and most obviously, recall that the aim of the people here was to build a tower that could reach to where? Heaven. And while their efforts and their own wisdom were, as we've seen, impressive in a sense, what does it say God does in order to inspect their work? He comes down. Their tower, in fact, does not reach to heaven. God, who is in heaven, comes down to see it. Here is the first failure and the first mockery of man's wisdom. Secondly, there's the word Babel. The word Babel comes from the Hebrew word for confusion, as the text indicates. The Babylonians, however, preferred a different meaning for their city name. There's a similar Akkadian word, which uses the same consonant sounds, Babel, that means the gate of the gods. For the Babylonians, and this is in keeping actually with the fact that they, their, their mythology said that the gods built these towers. So it's, it's a matter of pride for them. So the Babylonians would have preferred this way of understanding the origin of their name. But this text makes clear that its actual origin was much more humiliating. It was connected with their confusion, their humbling under God's judgment. 
So this, again, these two ways in which God subtly mocks the human wisdom of Babel. Now, as I alluded to a moment ago, the potential that existed here was that this people, with its unity of language and unity of purpose, if left to themselves, this people, united against God, would fill the world once more with wickedness and with misery for the righteous. And God, in his faithfulness, wasn't going to allow this. He had promised to never again take care of a worldwide sin problem by means of a flood judgment. And so here he heads it off by confusing their language. And we read, by bringing to pass exactly what the people had feared. What had they feared in verse 4? The people of Shinar initiated their rebellion, lest, they said, we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Twice in verses 8 and 9 we read, from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Does this not clearly show the folly and the futility of man's wisdom? All their effort to perfect their brickmaking, to unite themselves in their purpose, and to undertake an impressive building project. And for what? Just to ultimately see the fear they were seeking to avoid come to pass anyway. Seeking a name for themselves, we find that they do receive one, but rather than one of honor, it is one of confusion and foolishness under the specter of judgment. Now let's return for a moment to think about how our fears and ambitions tend to lead us to the use of man's wisdom. Can you see how worldly efforts that can look so wise, whether those be the best education, excellent investment strategies, living in a safe neighborhood, having access to the best health care, these can hold so much appeal for us, can't they? But the truth is, each and every one of these is for its own sake, just as futile as the Tower of Babel. This is the wisdom Jesus applies in the story of the rich man who planned to build for himself larger silos to hold the wealth of his grain. As soon as he makes this plan, God says to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A poignant counterexample to such worldly wisdom is found closer to our day in the life and death of the missionary Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot's most, favorite, or most famous quote is one of my favorites, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of yours also. This is what Jim Elliot said. He is no fool what gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot backed up those words when he gave his life, along with four other men, in their efforts to reach a remote people group in the jungles of Ecuador. Many people, of course, thought it made no sense for a young man who was an excellent student and a standout athlete, a young man who easily could have chosen from any number of lucrative professions. People thought it made no sense for him to leave his wife and young daughter so that he could die in Ecuador. What was the point of that? The point was that Jim Elliot knew a wisdom. He knew a wisdom so contrary to man's wisdom that we might call it the foolishness of God. 
As you see on your outlines, that is the heading for point two. Starting in verse 10, we begin to see what I mentioned a moment ago, that implicit here in chapter 11 is an ongoing struggle between the cursed seed of Ham, builder of cities, and the righteous line of Shem. This is reflected first in a wordplay between what the people said in verse 4, that they would make a name for themselves, and the fact that Shem is the same word. Shem means name. As we've seen in previous sermons, God is being intentional here through what Moses writes to trace his seed promise, which is the promise of an ultimate savior or Messiah, the ultimate son promised to Eve back in chapter 3, verse 15. Here, the record of Shem's line contrasts with the narrative of Babel. In much the same way that the record of Seth's line in chapter 5 contrasts with the city building and violence of Cain's line in chapter 4. Whereas Babel, again, represents man's wisdom, by which man would seek to establish his name, God's wisdom, by which he establishes his name, is a matter of this ongoing outworking of his promise. There are two key features of this genealogy which we need to see. One is positive, and the other is seemingly negative. First, on the positive side, there's a contrast between this list and the list of Seth's descendants back in chapter 5. Although the two lists have much in common in the way they report the age of each man when he fathered a son, and then the additional years of his life after that, there's a key feature from the list in chapter 5 that is missing here. The words, and he died. Now I hope I've emphasized that enough in previous texts, that that's just so repetitive there in chapter 5 that it jumps out at you immediately. That's, that's the intended effect. The fact that it's missing should say something. This is a difference, although it's subtle, and it's meant to bring a measure of hope. God promised after the flood that things would be different. The evil of man would never again fill the whole world to the point where it would be necessary to bring the judgment of death by flood. God had promised that would never happen again. That promise we saw in chapter 9 was God's eternal covenant. God's covenant that was meant to lead to life rather than to death. And this adjustment in the way the genealogy of the promise is recorded in Genesis 11, where it's missing and he died over and over again, this should lead our thoughts away from death and in the direction of eternal life on the basis of this ongoing promise. God has come down. Hearing the cry of the righteous, he has intervened here to thwart human sin, to thwart human wisdom. And his promise continues in the direction of life. The second feature I want you to notice actually leads in the opposite direction. Even as the hope continues with the promised line and as it leads in the direction of life by losing its emphasis on each man's death, Notice what happens to the lifespans of the men in this list as it goes along. Their lifespans decrease. This, this creates an interesting contrast between man's wisdom at Babel in an effort to step up to heaven by his own wisdom and God's foolishness in the way he's going about his promise, stepping down the lifespans of those in the line of his promise. Here are the numbers, and you don't often think that preaching is going to include math, but I had to do some math to 
to get these numbers. These are the numbers as things move along from Shem, who lives 600 years, all the way down to Nahor, eight generations later. Starting at 600, it goes to 438, then 433, 464, 239, 239, 230, and then all the way down to 148. So from 600 was the lifespan for Shem all the way to 148 at Nahor. Here we see the folly from a human perspective, the folly of God's promise. Is God's promise achieved through human strength? No. God's power and God's plan is not made perfect in human strength. God's plan and his promise are brought about not through our strength, but through our weakness and even through our dying. As it says in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his holy ones. This again is the contrast I mentioned a moment ago. Man's wisdom at Babel celebrated man's supposed ability to step upward, ascending to heaven. The foolishness of God's promise, on the other hand, descends further into human weakness as human lifespans, specifically in the line of promise, are seen to decrease. The theme of weakness, and this is human weakness being used by God for his purpose, so God's weakness. This theme becomes even more pronounced as we move into the final verses of the chapter. At the very end of the genealogy, we read in verse 26, And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This fits a pattern that we've seen twice already in Genesis. Adam, God's man for the first sequence of history, is recorded fathering three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Noah, God's man for the second sequence of history, is recorded fathering three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here we read of Terah, who fathers three sons. And we soon find in the next chapter, chapter 12, that it is Terah's son Abram who will become the nation through whom all nations will be blessed. And this we will continue to see is God's appointed folly, his weakness. Contrary to Babel, it is not human strength and ingenuity that brings us to God. It is rather human weakness. God does not use the strong. He uses the weak. Again, from 1 Corinthians 1. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. We see human weakness in contrast to Babel's display of human wisdom and strength. We see it very clearly in these closing verses in a couple of ways. First, we read this in verse 28. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is the first time, other than the murder of Abel, that we read of a parent losing a child in Genesis. In Shinar, in the account of Babel, all we see is human strength and wisdom. Yes, it is thwarted by God's judgment, but we don't read of death. 
In fact, Babylon goes on to be a center throughout Scripture of human wisdom and prosperity. There is success and power in human wisdom in Babylon, and it is, as I said last week, a nearly constant source of affliction for God's people. By contrast, we find in the line of promise a father, Abram's father, Terah, mourning the death of his son, Haran. Continuing on in the text, we find the account of Terah's family continuing in more pain and in even greater weakness. Terah's son, Abram, the one again through whom the promise would continue, Abram takes a wife named Sarai. And we read in verse 30, And Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's hard to overstate the devastation of barrenness in this context. To be barren was the opposite of God's blessing unto faithfulness and unto fruitfulness. To be barren was seemingly to be cut off from God's promise. The condition of barrenness was full of pain and social stigma. Exactly the kind of weakness through which, as we continue to see throughout Scripture, God loves to work his plan. In verse 31, we read that Terah's family was brought to even more weakness in another way. We read over and again in the Old Testament of how it is humbling to be a foreigner. To be a sojourner in a foreign land is portrayed as being in a place of weakness and affliction. Beloved, this is the weakness of God, the kind of weakness he loves to use. Who are the ideal vessels for God's faithfulness to his promise? Not those who would, by their own strength and ingenuity, ascend to heaven. The ideal vessels for God's faithfulness to his promise are the weak, the brokenhearted, those who mourn, preserving their trust in God, saying he's good and right and can be trusted, even in the heartache of losing a child, or in the pain of barrenness that might seem at first even to contradict the promise. It is not the proud, but the poor in spirit who will inherit the promises. Coming back to where we started, I want us to take a few moments to consider the difficulty of getting on board with God's wisdom, which looks so much to the world like foolishness. As I mentioned last week, we have a tendency to define God's goodness and faithfulness in ways that are contrary to the emphases of the Bible. We tend to think that good is when things are going well for us. We tend to think that God is most faithful when we get the path of ease and health and comfort that we crave. And that's not just the world. We tend to do that as believers. I tend to do that. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't come naturally to think the way Scripture does on this. The way of the psalmist in 119 who says things like this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O Yahweh, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Friends, texts like that, and like what we've seen in Genesis 11, they teach us that something is wrong with our wanters. Something is wrong, at the begin as I said at the beginning of the sermon, something is wrong with our wills. How can we overcome that will problem? How can we get God's help to fix a broken wanter? Brothers and sisters, Genesis 11 helps us with this. 
What was the outcome of man's wisdom at Babel? Did they get what they wanted? No. The example of Babel, as with the example of Cain's line before it, as with the example of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, as with the examples of Og and Bashan and Jericho and the other cities defeated in the conquest, even as the example of Solomon's futile efforts at human wisdom and prosperity recorded in Ecclesiastes. These all teach the same thing. The outcome of those things is death. By contrast, the way of the brokenhearted, the way of the barren, the way of the poor in spirit, the way of those who have given what they could not keep to gain what they could not lose, the way that seems so foolish to the world is in fact the way of life. Friends, you need to pursue not man's wisdom, but God's foolishness. The call for you today, whether you have never trusted your, entrusted yourself to the Lord, or whether he is simply calling you to return or to trust him today in a new way, the call for you today is to forsake your own wisdom. Forsake the wisdom that promises to lead you to every kind of comfort and well-being in this life, and embrace God's folly. Embrace the cross instead. Embrace God's foolishness by which he has met the only need you really have, your need to be forgiven. The call is for you to forsake what makes sense to the world and to embrace what is described in the Valley of Vision as God's paradox. Listen to the words of this precious Puritan prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Friends, this is the paradox we must embrace. Oh, how we need to give up on taking our own counsel. Please pray with me that we would embrace instead the foolishness of God which is wiser than men and the weakness of God, which is stronger than men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your mercy to us in opening our eyes through a text like this to the futility of man's wisdom. Father, to the fact that our own wisdom, our own counsel leads us to death, not even to gaining what we thought we could gain from our own way. Father, we thank you that it teaches us, it points us instead to a wisdom that is so far beyond what this world can conceive of that we could call it the foolishness of God. We pray, Father, that you would make this paradox real in our hearts, that we would see that the way down is the way up. Father, that we would be, as James says, those who turn our laughter to tears and our joy to mourning. Father, that we would 
grieve our sin, not as those who have no hope, but, Father, as those whose greatest need, whose only need, has been met through the, the cross of your Son. We thank you for our forgiveness through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.